morning, Christ Central. My name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my honor and privilege to share with you God's Word this morning. We are continuing in our sermon series in the life of David. This morning we will be in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let me pray for us now before we dive into the text. Father, I ask that you would use this message, this sermon, this time in your word to strengthen us, your people, that you would help us to see you for who you are. pray that we would leave here this morning transformed because we have encountered you, living God. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. For those of you who have been following along with us in this series, you might be surprised by our sermon text this morning, because for some strange reason this morning we are majorly backtracking, way back to before David even enters the story. So what in the world does 1 Samuel 8 have to do with the life of David? It's a great question. The reason that we are taking a pit stop in 1 Samuel 8 this morning, is because next week we come to the pivotal turning point in our story. Next week we will witness the dramatic transition from David the Anointed to David the King. And not only is this a pivotal turning point for David, but also for God's people, because for the people of God, this marks the transition from a king after the people's heart, King Saul, to a king after God's own heart. So clearly, a huge moment both in the life of David as well as in the life of Israel. But in order for us to fully understand what is taking place in 2 Samuel chapter 1, where we were headed, this morning we need to spend some time here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Because what 1 Samuel 8 reveals for us is the inauguration of the monarchy in Israel. And for those of you who haven't spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, you may not realize that God's people didn't always have a king. In fact, for thousands of years, God's people have existed as a unified people, but without a central governing figure. And in 1 Samuel 8, the trajectory of Israel dramatically shifts with the institution of the throne. But the question still remains... Why is it important that we as 21st century Christians take note of this pivotal moment in the life of David? Why is this shift of governance a big deal? And the reason that this significant moment in the life of Israel should matter to us is because the story of Israel is the necessary vehicle through which God chose to give us the gospel story say that again. The story of Israel is the necessary vehicle through which God chose to give us the gospel story. And when we take the gospel out of its context, we are at great risk of it being distorted. For example, my wife and I have started to read the book Charlotte's Web with my oldest daughter. It's a wonderful book. But what if we were to simply jump right to the climax of the story? 
and just read to her the part about the county fair. She would miss a lot. She would miss a lot of the essence, the heart, the beauty of the story, right? She might just then assume that this is a story about some crazy spider's web-weaving skills, and there happens to be this silly old pig that gets to witness this feat. She would miss the beautiful, rich complexity of the story of a runt, a pig that no one wanted, that had a heart of gold and loved all the animals just the same, and about this uncommon friendship forged in the barn between the pig and the spider, and how that friendship ultimately led to the preservation of the pig's life. Sorry if I spoiled the book for you. I still recommend you take time to read it. But the point is, brothers and sisters, if our Bible intake is almost entirely New Testament, if we are only reading the Gospels and the Epistles, we are in grave danger of misunderstanding the very essence of the Gospel. Because without the story of Israel, we won't know what are the questions that the Gospel is seeking to answer. What are the problems that the Gospel is seeking to solve? Because we are lacking the story of Israel, the backstory that informs us as to what the part we love is all about. Or just quote, quote Scott McKnight, the Gospel only makes sense in light of Israel's story. And if we ignore that story, the gospel inevitably gets distorted. Brothers and sisters, the role of king in the story of Israel is massively significant to our understanding of the the Bible. We, We better understand this story. And if we don't understand this story, we will never truly understand the gospel itself. This morning I want to begin by briefly unpacking this idea of kingdom. It's at the heart of the whole biblical story. And then I want to look at three aspects of our text. First, the failure to recognize the king. Second, the folly of any other king than God's king. And then third, the fruit of God's king being on the throne. So let's begin by first looking at this concept of kingdom in the scriptures. For further reading on this subject, I highly recommend to you this book, God's Big Picture, by Vaughn Roberts. We have a few copies at the book table for sale, so please pick one up if you'd like. But the kingdom of God, as defined by Graham Goldsworthy, is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing enjoying his presence. Say that again. The kingdom of God, I think this is rightly defined, is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing enjoying his presence. What we see in the scriptures is that has always been and always will be God's design and his desire for his creation. We see this first manifested in the garden. God's people, Adam and Eve, are living in God's place, the garden. They're living under God's rule. They've been given commandments. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't eat of that tree. And they're clearly experiencing God's blessing. In the garden, there was no lack. Abundance everywhere. And then lastly, we know from Genesis 3 
that in the garden Adam and Eve regularly enjoyed God's presence. See, there's the kingdom's design at work from the very beginning. But what Genesis 2 reveals is that unfortunately this kingdom way of life was destroyed, destroyed by sin. By Adam and Eve's failure to live underneath the rule and blessing of God. Or said differently, by their failure to recognize God as king. And so they're banished, banished from the place, from the garden, and all of the aspects of the kingdom are lost. God's people are no longer in God's place, no longer living under his rule and blessing, and no longer enjoying his presence. Brothers and sisters, huge fundamental biblical truth I'm about to give you. In response to this breakdown of the kingdom because of our sin, God in his great love promises to put all things right again, to reestablish his kingdom on earth. And that, my friends, is the meta-narrative of the whole Bible, the big picture, the real essence of the whole story. The Bible, beginning in Genesis 3, is the story of God's fulfillment of that promise, the promise to restore his kingdom on earth, the restoration of God's people living in God's place under God's rule and blessing, fully enjoying his presence. And the Old Testament, which we're looking at today, is the story of the progressive fulfillment of this promise in the life of Israel, God's people. Let me hit a few highlights here, and I want you to listen again for the different components of the kingdom from Goldsworthy's definition. People, place, rule, blessing, and presence. Remember that through the exodus from Egypt out of slavery, God makes Abraham's descendants his very own people. There's the first real powerful instance we see of that fulfillment happening. And then at Mount Sinai, God gives his people the law, the Ten Commandments, to rule his people so that God's people might again live underneath his authority. And then through the creation of the tabernacle, this mobile temple, if you will, God gives his people his presence again, although veiled in the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the tabernacle, but his presence nonetheless. And then finally, under Joshua, God's pe- God gives his people a place once again. They finally make it to the promised land. Which now brings us to our text, First Samuel 8. Forgive me for the lengthy introduction, but I think it's so important that we understand where we are in the story of God's fulfillment of his promise to restore his kingdom on earth. We have to know how it all fits together. And so now we come to our text, where God's people are living in God's place under God's rule and blessing, enjoying his presence, although veiled, as we said. But it's too good to be true, right? Our text begins with what appears to be a flashback to the garden. And once again, there's a breakdown of the kingdom way of life. Which brings us to our first insight from 1 Samuel chapter 8. The failure of God's people to recognize the king. Look again with me at the text, starting in verse 1. A problem has arisen, as they often do. Samuel, in his old age, has appointed his sons to be judged over Israel. A clear reminder that nepotism is never a good idea. The problem here is that 
Verse 3, Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways, the ways of God, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So, verse 4, the elders rightly gathered together to deal with this problem. But the way in which they deal with this problem is where the kingdom breakdown begins. Look at verse 5. They say to Samuel, Behold, you are old, which is really not a nice way to start the conversation, but they say, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But what's so bad about this request? We clearly know from the rest of our story that neither Samuel nor God liked this request, but why? See, the problem with this request is that it reveals the heart of God's people. That they are committing the cardinal sin, the sin underneath all sin, if you will, the sin being a failure to recognize God as Lord, as King. But what's the evidence of this crime? They just asked a question, right? They just wanted a king like all the other nations. They just wanted to fit in. Is that so bad? Let's look at how this specific request differs from the way the people handled a crisis in the previous chapter. Chapter 7, backdrop here, the people of Israel have just gotten word. The Philistines, their sworn enemy, are putting together an army to attack Israel. And the defeat seems imminent, so the people are up against the wall. So what do they do? Do they run for the hills? Do they try to hire mercenaries, maybe to try to even the odds? No. Beginning in verse 7, when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines, rightfully so. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us that he may save us, from the hand of the Philistines. Did you see that? In the moment of crisis, they run to God in prayer. Now look again at our text. Another crisis has arisen. There are these terrible godless leaders in place. They're destroying the purity of God's kingdom, but instead of running to God, the people present to God their own solution to the problem. Brothers and sisters, this point is so big because Israel's story is, in fact, our story, right? And one of the primary ways for us to discern whether or not we are recognizing God as king is by what we do in a moment of crisis. I want to share a story from my personal life that I think highlights this point. My wife and I are in the throes of making a school decision for our oldest child. And there's so many complex issues involved in this decision. For those of you who are in this season, you know what I'm talking about. And over the past few months, I've been gathering information, doing research, talking to teachers, parents, and administrators, trying to figure out what is the best fit for our daughter. What's best in this decision? Sometime last week, my wife, without really intending to do so, really slapped me around a bit. We were having yet another discussion about this issue, and she, in a moment of desperation, just kind of blurted out, we've got to be laboring in prayer over this. And it's not that we hadn't been praying, but it was in that moment that my wife was recentering us as a family. 
Not saying that wisdom and research aren't needed, but that our anchor is this God who is on the throne. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, God's people lost their anchor. And instead of crying out to God, they came up with a solution that they thought would be best, based on their wisdom and research. Kings seem to be working for everybody else. God, why don't you just give us one of those? What is God's response? Verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You see, it wasn't simply the request for a king that was so bad. As we'll see in a second, God was planning all along to provide his people with a king, an earthly king. The problem was that God's people were putting their trust in something other than God the king. And this response is so informative for us as 21st century Christians. Brothers and sisters, what do you do in a moment of crisis? And more importantly, what does that behavior reveal about where your trust truly lies? Are you recognizing God as king and therefore running to him first and foremost in your moment of need? Or is there something else that you're primarily putting your trust and hope in. Which brings us to our second insight this morning from 1 Samuel 8. When it comes to the role of the king in the story of Israel, we see that there is folly in any other king other than God's own king. The primary issue that most people, even today, have with monarchy is that it places so much power in the hands of one individual. And we can all sit back and, and see that history has told us, both biblical and not, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. We know that to be true. Brothers and sisters, this is why God was so reluctant to instill a human king over God's people. Because he knew the consequences but what's amazing about this text is that in the midst of this blatant rejection of God's authority, God continues to care for his people and to plead with them to do what's right. Not for God's selfish gain, but for the gain of his people. God knowing that he himself is the only absolute power that can never be corrupted. And yet he acquiesces to the request of the people. So God says, Samuel, they are rejecting me but I'm going to reluctantly give them what they want. But, but please, would you just warn them one more time for me? So at least I can be confident that they are informed in their decision. What a loving and gentle and gracious God. So beginning in verse 10, Samuel does just that. He warns God's people again. Without getting into the minutiae, what jumps out from this section is this phrase, he will take. It's repeated over and over and over again. He will take, he will take, he will take. And we see the heart of God's warning is, if you do this, if you appoint a king, it will be very costly. Verse 17, really driving home was at stake. God says, he will take the tenth of your flock and you will be his slave. God is saying, if you do this, 
you will functionally be going back to Egypt, back into slavery. And remember, remember the definition of kingdom. It's God's people, independent of any outside rule. But here, by asking for a king, God's people will no longer be his people, but instead will belong to the earthly king. Once again, brothers and sisters, we must see Israel's story as our story. The application here is that we must be weary of any place where God is not on the throne. Any place where God's rule and reign does not exist. Because we see in the scriptures that it never works out very well. But how do we go about examining such a thing in this society that we live in that clearly does not herald the one true God as king. How do we look for these places where God's rule and reign does not exist? I was at breakfast on a breakfast on Friday, put on by World Relief here in Durham. The breakfast was for church leaders in the community, and during the presentation, the presenter shared a statistic that blew my mind. He said uh, that World Relief had conducted a study last year in which they asked thousands of evangelical Christians uh, this question. Evangelical Christians, that's us. And the question was, if their views on refugees and other immigrants were partly, keyword partly, were partly informed by the Bible. They asked the host of evangelical Christians if they, when they came up with their views on refugees and immigrants, were they looking at the Bible, at least a little bit. I want to know how many evangelical Christians said that their views on refugees and other immigrants were partly shaped by the Bible. 12%. 12% of evangelicals claimed that their views on refugees and immigrants were partly shaped by the Bible. Brothers and sisters, that is appalling. The kingdom of God exists where people live under God's rule and as a result experience his blessing. And if our views in everything are not shaped by the Bible, by God's rule, his kingdom and blessing will never fill the earth. It is our duty as Christians to exegete, to study the culture that we live in. And whenever we see God's rule and reign absent, we are to enter in and seek to cultivate that rule and reign. Because apart from it, injustice, he will take, he will take, he will take, will run rampant. Christ Central, we need to look around and see where God's truth is absent. Fight for change. Let me help you a little bit. Brothers and sisters, we need to look at education in our city, and, and recognize that it is hoarded by the wealthy and kept from the poor among us. We need to look hard at our criminal justice system and call out the racial inequalities that are present there. We need to read books like Just Mercy and The New Jim Crow and, just, and not just idly stand by. We need to look at gentrification that is happening all around us and wrestle with how God's rule speaks into people being systematically pushed out of their homes. We need to look at, at gender issues in the workplace. 
We need to look at rape culture and sex trafficking and on and on and on. And we need to engage and say no more. There's so many applications here. The point is that the role of the Christian is to long for the kingdom of God to fill the earth. When we observe that that not be the case, we must intervene with grace and truth. Which brings us to our third and final insight from the text. That which will most prepare us from the coming chapters of David's life. The fruit of God's King being on know from previous sermons in this series how this story plays out. 1 Samuel 9, God gives his people what they want, a king after their hearts, King Saul, and the result is catastrophic. God's people are encouraged by Saul to live outside of God's rule, and as a result, they stop experiencing God's blessing and presence. But there is hope. God uses this as a teaching moment for his people to prepare them for the installation of his king, the king after his own heart, King David. And what we will soon see is that King David brings God's people back underneath God's rule, and they experience God's blessing and presence like never before. But the problem is that the story of Israel is like a broken record. Unfortunately, just like King Saul, King David begins to rule with his own best interests in mind. And the kingdom of God breaks down once again. But brothers and sisters, let us not be too discouraged. Because God never intended for King David to usher in his kingdom in the fullness. David always existed as one who points to the true and final king. The king which the prophets all foretold about. Listen to Daniel chapter 9. The prophet Daniel is speaking to this great moment when God's king will arrive. It says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. God's kingdoms, people and God's place. Prophet Daniel continues, verse 25, Now therefore, understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Daniel is predicting the moment when this prince is going to come and redeem God's people and reestablish God's holy place and spoiler alert, his name is Jesus. And the good news for us, brothers and sisters, living in 2017 is that Christ has come. He has died. And he rose from the grave. And he is right at this very moment, seated at the right hand of God on his throne. What does that mean for you and I? The King Jesus is on his throne. Remember, Israel's story is in fact our story. And as I said before, there's a great danger when all we read is New Testament. And the danger is that we come to believe, potentially, 
that Jesus is merely a priest. That maybe he existed only to be a once and for all sacrifice. But apart from digging into Israel's story as the foundation of the gospel story, we might miss that Jesus is not just a priest, but he is also the prophesied king. And as he, as a king, he right now rules and reigns. Brothers and sisters, it's going to show up on the screen behind me, but I want you to listen to how the confession of faith describes Christ's kingly role. And think about the implications for you and I today. Question 45 of the larger catechism says, How does Christ execute the office of a king? The answer is, Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. He's present, visibly present, and bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them in their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who do not, who know not God and obey not the gospel. The power is in that statement that so much scripture is packed in there, is that the king is ruling presently, right now on his throne, on our behalf. So I want to leave you just with a few applications from that powerful truth as we recognize and embrace the fact that God's king is on the throne, or as C.S. Lewis might say, Aslan is on the move. Brothers and sisters, we need not tremble at the attacks of the evil because Jesus is greater than the one in this world. Brothers and sisters, we need not question the assurance of our salvation because King Jesus has promised and is able to powerfully preserve in us that which he has purchased with his death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, we need not fear for our safety and security because as Matthew 28 highlights, King Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We are in his hands. Lastly, brothers and sisters, we should have great hope for this world. Because King Jesus has begun the final process of reestablishing God's kingdom here on earth. Where his people will be under his rule and experiencing his blessing. And he has promised he is coming back to finish the task and put all things right again. That is our blessed hope in the midst of this hopeless and painful world. Many of you are familiar with the story of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was a South African who gave his life to the anti-apartheid revolution. Apartheid being the institutional race-based that existed in South Africa for over 40 years. And Mandela served 27 years in prison as a part of this fight. The question is, how in the world could someone survive such great oppression and suffering and not lose focus and not give up? 
See, I think the answer is that Mandela knew that in the midst of all this injustice that was around him, that King Jesus was in fact still on his throne. And that the only way to experience God's presence and blessing was for God's rule and reign to be brought back to South Africa. And so he fought to instill God's truth in his homeland, the truth that we're all created in the image of God and precious to him and should be treated as such. Mandela fought to usher in the kingdom of God in South Africa. He won that battle. May we as Christians be likewise motivated to pursue God's rule and reign wherever he may have us so that the world might experience God's blessing and his beautiful presence.